I'm excited and amazed about all the different ministries that are going on in our church. It's always kind of fun for me to find out because it comes from the Holy Spirit through you. But I hope you're praying for one another. Be praying for Mary and those that are interpreting our deaf ministry. Jeremy's up there interpreting in Spanish, which is so that if you bring somebody that speaks Spanish, that's their heart language, go to the back. You have a little earphone you can get, so I'll be preaching in English, and Jeremy is preaching in Spanish up there. But pray for me. That's tough because I might be hard to follow sometimes. But uh, it's exciting. Now, tonight, I want to mention that because tonight at the 5 o'clock service, Jeremy's going to be preaching again. He's on staff here uh, ministering with our young people and also in the Spanish ministry. And so we love to hear our men teach the word. God's blessed with so many. So you come and hear Jeremy tonight at the 5 o'clock service. We are in Philippians, or excuse me, Titus chapter 2. We want to finish the chapter today. The message is entitled, The Non-Negotiables of Saving Faith, Titus 2, 11 through 15. Father, we pray that you would give the filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that the message might be from you, and Lord, that we might all be spirit-filled listeners, that our hearts would be open to your word, open to the conviction of your Holy Spirit, open to your grace that we might be found obedient, not just hearers only. Lord, I pray that if there are some that are convicted about their lostness today, you would draw them to yourself, and we'll give you all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Paul began this, mis- uh, this uh, message, this chapter to Timothy, verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. He doesn't talk about soteriology. He talks about the practical responsibility that we have as believers, how we treat one another, so the world will see that and it will reflect the grace of Jesus Christ. So he starts out. He said, older men, you need to be demonstrating Christ like this, with honor in your lifestyle. Older women, you need to have a testimony of Jesus Christ so you have a platform of believability, so the younger women in the church will be willing to learn from you how to love their husbands, how to love their children, so that the word of God is not dishonored. See, it's not just what you believe up here. It's what you carry out. What are you showing the world that you believe? Then he says, younger men or younger women, this is how you love your family. God hasn't changed. That needs to be distinct from the world. Then he says, younger women or younger men, you need to live life through your speech and through your actions so the world has nothing to say evil about you. Grown up, even in your youth, a testimony, an example of the believer. Then he says, servants, employees, you need to live out your faith in such a way that it adorns the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 1, he says, you need to instruct those that are false teachers to be quiet. Chapter 2, he says, if you want to have a testimony to the world, this is how the church reaches and and loves one another. And then chapter 3, this is how we respond to the outside. But he said, these are non-negotiables. If you look at verse 15, 
we want to head today. These things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Which things? The whole chapter. How to treat one another, how to love our family, how it's supposed to be a priority, how wives are to respect their husbands, how husbands are to love their wives. And it all happens within the context of the local church. That's what discipleship is. A parachurch ministry means alongside. We have a lot of parachurch ministries represented in our church. But you're not an end in yourself. You're just an arm of the church reaching out to plant people in the local church because you can't disciple them with older people in the college ministry, can you? Because the oldest person there is using the leader and he's not the only one. A lot of people like to brag about parachurch ministries. They think they're hitting home runs, but they're not teaching the whole counsel of God. Because the Great Commission was, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, is go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them. Where does that take place? Local church. Into what? The local church. And then teach them to observe all things. What? These things here. Not just the doctrines of salvation, but the doctrines of the Christian life lived out by people that can demonstrate Christ in their life. I think sometimes parachurch ministries are really, really uh, very trendy. But those ministries will be judged by Jesus Christ based upon what their attachment was and how did they plant people in the local church. Jesus died for the church. And it kind of reminds me of Little kids playing baseball in the backyard, hitting home runs with a wiffle ball. Woohoo! Hit it over the fence. And we go, well, that's nice for now. See, God is going to judge every one of our ministries, whether it's gold, silver, precious stone. A lot of ministries look really cool to the world, but it doesn't really matter what the world says. How does Jesus judge it? Here it is. The non-negotiables of saving grace. Verse 1. God didn't just give us a new set of rules in Christianity. A lot of religions operate that way. They even take the law of the Old Testament and say, now live like this. But without grace, there is no potential. There's just misery. Look at the Pharisees. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to get it. What do you mean? You've got to have the righteousness of Christ. The only way to have the righteousness of Christ is you receive it into your life that Christ becomes your life. It's the only way. Because just to give a sinner a, a new set of rules is just going to make him bitter and judgmental. And discouraged. There are some people who are naturally self-disciplined a little bit more than others. So they might be able to carry it out for a little while, but eventually they're going to be bitter and disappointed because it's not working. All the religions of the world are jump this high, do this, do more. But Christ is, says, come unto me all you that are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You rest in him, partake of the life of Christ. See, the flesh says do more, but it's all about you. Even your religion, look how good I'm doing. 
You might even treat people better for a while based upon an external code, but eventually it becomes about you. That's the teacher. How is this going to affect me, myself, and I? But grace gives us a new teacher. Verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared to all men. So anyone that partakes of the gospel, anyone that receives Jesus Christ has a new teacher because it says the next verse, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly now in this present world now. Here and now, faithfulness. Very practical. But it's also supernatural. Because you can't put this on. You can't fake this. Jesus said, or or John said about Jesus that the commands of Christ to a believer are not a burden. You may not able to always look like Christ, act like Christ, but it is the desire of your heart to please him. You have a new teacher, grace teaching. It's the power and the desire for Christ-likeness. It instructs you. Now, even before you are a mature believer and you may not have a lot of, you've received Christ, you don't have a lot of information about the word, you don't have a lot of knowledge yet, but what rules in your life? This new principle of grace. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule and reign in your life. Years ago, a fellow named Michael Lewis came to know Christ, a brand new Christian. He was in the art department uh, as a student at the university, brand new believer. And cults and Satan love to apply cultic practices to new believers because they're so excited to serve the Lord. They'll take rules. They'll take legalism. They just want to please the, please the Lord. And this guy said, I was working on a project in the big, one of the big areas at that time in the old art building, fine arts building. And these guys walked in, never seen them before, looked at all the people and headed right for me. How did they know? He said, I don't know. And they began to spill their legalism and their cultic whatever, like, you don't have it all. You're missing something. And finally, Michael stopped them and he said, guys, I don't have any answers for you. All I know right now, I'm not supposed to be talking to you anymore. He didn't have an apologetic for him yet. He just knew that this was against what God had given him, peace. That's grace that leads us, that protects us, that encourages, that gives us that desire to please the Lord. That's a whole new principle from the flesh because it puts Christ first. It's written on your heart. Romans 6, 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were the slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What happened? It's a new principle. You have a new Holy Spirit living within you, the Holy Spirit. You've partaken of Christ's life, which means all of his desires. You're going to start looking like him. You can't help it. My boy's... I had three of them that were all kind of together, four of them. They all became teenagers about the same time, I think. 
So their voice had all changed or was in the process of changing. And people would call the house and they'd answer the phone. And people on the other end would say, Pastor? And they'd say, Yes. Then they start laughing. Oh, who is this? And they'd give the phone to me. And then people say, Oh, it's amazing. Sound just like you. Well, that's not a big mystery. I'm their dad. It's not a big mystery when somebody really comes to Christ and God changes everything. I remember when Lisa, now uh, um, Miller, first came to church. And some guys had been from our church, college guys, been working with her on the city crew, mowing lawns. And they invited her to church. And then she accepted, like, oh, no. Because she was this girl that was always trying to fix everybody. She was kind of a woman's liver. And uh, she was there to be instruction for everybody. And then, oh, she's coming. Well, God had been working in her heart. The first time she heard the gospel in this church, I'm sure she'd heard it before, she received Christ as her Savior. And about six months later, she said, Paul, I don't know what's going on with me. It's like God put my whole body in this meat grinder and it's coming out different. I have totally different desires. I just want to be a wife and mom now. What happened? It's called new life. New life. It happens to every single person that receives Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what grace does. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, you don't even look at Jesus the same after you're saved. Everything's different. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. All things have become new. Whole new life. Romans 8, 6 says, the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset in the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset in the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, they might come to church for a while, but eventually they're going to say, you know, honestly, I can't stand it. Why? Because it's against the flesh and they don't have the spirit. They don't have the life of Christ. They'll say, everybody's judging me all the time. That's not true, not in this church. What's going on? The Holy Spirit's convicting them. They don't have what somebody else has, but they reject and they say, I gotta get out of here. I gotta find a church that affirms me. I didn't go to church to feel bad. I went to church to feel good, and this is not working, right? Verse nine says, however, you as believers are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You don't get salvation and then later you get the Holy Spirit. It's one package. It's one package. Do sinners, do, do believers sin? Yes, they still sin. That's the blessed hope we're going to talk about in a little bit. That one day he's going to make us perfect. But what's working in our heart is the desire to please God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says... We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That's what happens. You have the Holy Spirit living in your heart. You desire for God to shepherd you now. He is your shepherd. You look at Psalm 23, and that's personal. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
He leads me. He feeds me. He protects me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to have fear. In sin, I can choose fear and be a worry ward even as a believer, but I don't have to. Why? Because I recognize the Lord is with me. He promised to never leave me nor forsake me. I'm not alone anymore. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. So when you talk to them about, well, I'm striving to become a wife that I can just be submissive to my husband, they go, what? That's not even American, right? What, are we living in the 1800s? Well, see, the Bible says over here um, in, in, in 1 Peter 3 that, that I'm to submit to him. Ephesians chapter 5, that I'm to submit to him like he's Jesus. <laughs> Your husband's not Jesus. Yeah, I know. That's why I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Then it says to, to husbands, you love your wives, even if she's ornery, as much as God loves the church. Oh, yeah, but Lord, yeah. How is that possible? Well, first of all, grace gives you the power and the desire for that. That's only grace. See, we get so disappointed because culture is going to hell, literally, right? It's falling apart. We say, oh, our country's falling apart. Of course it's falling apart. They don't have Jesus. Don't worry about it. You're just going to have a little clearer demarcation between light and darkness. It's our opportunity. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. They might try it for a while. Eventually, they're going to go back to where they came from. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Philippians 2.12 says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's what you got. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not just, Paul says, when I'm around, much more when I'm not around. You know, sometimes we, we think, well, I got saved, then I grew up in Christian home, then I went to secular college, and my life fell apart because I wasn't around Christians anymore. No, your life fell apart because you weren't a Christian. Daniel was taken from his home, put in a, a pagan culture, put in the king's house, given a pagan name, and he still stood as a teenager for God because he determined in his heart not to vile himself with the things of the world. It's not just osmosis. It's not always that we have this in Christian schools and in home schools. We only want to be around people that agree with us all the time. And if only the politicians would be the same, I could be a lot more comfortable in my ministry. Well, you're in the world. And the world hates Jesus. And because of that, you're not greater than Jesus. They're going to hate you too. But you have grace. You can stand, if necessary, by yourself because... The grace of God will make you stand. It's his power, not yours. That, that grace is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do you have that life? Or are you just trying from the outside to fit in? You're one way on Sunday, but in the quietness of your own mind, you're a completely different person. And you got to make sure nobody finds out who that person is. That's a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, they broadened the hem of their garments and did all these external things. But Jesus said, inside, they're full of all manner of corruption and dead men's bones. Jesus saw the heart. But see, believers, we can be transparent. 
James 5 says, believers, confessing your faults to one another. You men and you women get together. You can actually be transparent with one another and say, pray for me. I want, a, I want a victory to be in my life in this area. Pray for me. Hebrews 10 says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. You don't have to keep telling one another, know the Lord, because I'm going to write my law on their minds and on their hearts. It's inside. You're not working for your salvation. That's what God has put in. You're working out. When a car guy gets a new pickup or a new truck, what's the first thing he does? Man, he starts looking at the manual. Look what this thing does, honey. And you go, you're his honey. You go, I don't care. It gets, it gets where I'm going. That's, oh, yeah, but look, it can go this fast. It's got this ratio in the pistons, and it's got, oh, man, this is amazing. See, that's what happens to a believer. God puts it all in there, and sanctification is the process where you're finding out what God has put in. You know what he put in you? He put him in there. He put God in there. So you're just working what God has put in there out. You've partaken of the DNA of Jesus Christ, and that's what you desire, what he desires. That's why. But not only has he put grace inside, you have a new teacher. You have this new want to. He's given you a whole new expectation. Verse 13. It's not about just this life. See, the world, they got to get all they can, get ahead, can all they get, and then sit on the lid because you got to get it. You got to get all you can. You're the only one that's going to take care of you. But that's not us. It's not over here. This is just the beginning. This is just our opportunity to demonstrate faith here and now. You see, he said in verse 12, this new desire is that we deny ungodliness, world desires, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, here and now. But our motivation partly is that there's something else coming. The blessed hope. Part of the blessed hope is that God's going to make me perfect. See, my biggest problem in life is not of the believers who are ornery and don't get along with me. See, if I was more like Christ, I'd be able to get along with them even if they're ornery. But in my flesh, I have to discipline myself say, no, that's my brother, that's my sister. I'm going to forgive them. I'm just going to look over that transgression because I want to be like Jesus, and he is always forgiving me. That's why the disciples were so amazed. Okay, Lord, give us a number. Okay, what's the number? What's the bottom line? How many times we have to forgive somebody for the same thing? Well, 70 times 7 a day for the same thing. 490 times a day? What is he saying? You keep forgiving your brothers and sisters as long as God keeps forgiving you. That's in there. That's in there. You see, we have a, an expectation. This is not it. The blessed hope. The inheritance prepared for us in heaven. And you know what the greatest part of that is? Is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in the old King James, it said, the glorious appearing. John MacArthur points out it's more than just his appearing. It's the glory he comes with. In his incarnation, his first appearing, Christ was grace personified. That's what he expects us to be, grace personified. 
In his second appearing, he will be glory personified. He will be the blazing Shekinah glory that Peter, James, and John saw partially revealed in Jesus at the transfiguration. When Jesus heard, the, when John heard the voice of his good friend, his Savior, Jesus Christ, in his vision in Revelation chapter 1, he heard that voice, he recognized it. it was so clear, it was like the piercings of a trumpet. He could understand every word, he knew who it was, and yet the volume was like Niagara Falls of great, rushing, mighty waters, and it shook him to his soul. But can you imagine if all of a sudden the doors opened, I said, oh, Jesus is here, right? What would we do? Oh, I want to see Jesus. That's what John did. And he turned to get a glimpse of Jesus, and he fell in a dead faint at his feet. Why? Because we cannot handle the physical presence of a holy God. That's why it was just a vision. God's going to have to change these bodies so we can be in his presence. 1 John chapter 3 says, Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he appears, we're going to be like him because we're going to see him personally. Every man that has this hope, every woman that has this hope that you're going to see Jesus, where'd that come from? God put it in there. The doctor gives you the news. You have cancer. There's no cure. And you go, oh, heavy news. And you might even go through the stages of grief, but eventually a Christian has this. Well, okay, let's get to where we're going, right? This is not over. I don't have to fear the unknown. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil because my shepherd is with me. He can set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I don't have to live with stress. I don't have to live with worry about what happens in the election. Oh, no. Jesus is not up for election. He sits on the throne. He's ordering all things according to his will. And we as his children understand that there's a future. It's a future. A blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Can you imagine? Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. I just love this. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. The first begotten of the dead. Get this. The prince of the kings of the earth loved you, died for you, and washed you from your sins in his own blood. And he has made you kings and priests unto God. Behold, he is coming. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, who is to come. The Almighty is coming back for you. When Stephen was stoned, what really got his persecutors, he fell to his knees and then he looked up and he said, I see Jesus standing by the Father's right hand. What was Jesus doing? His work was done, but he stood up to say, come on home, Stephen. And then the Bible says, Stephen fell asleep. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is the hope of a believer. It's not a hope so. 
It's a sure anticipation. Do we still have questions about that? Of course we do. You haven't been there before. But you can trust a faithful creator to take care of you all the way through. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, this is our courage. And when we read things like that in Scripture, go, oh, good, right? And when you get to heaven and you open your eyes to see Jesus, you can say, whoo, right? Because you haven't been there yet, but you still have this sure anticipation. Not like the world. Oh, I sure hope so. No, no, it's sure. It's going to happen. And you have a new motivation. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. You see, he gave himself for you. The purpose for which he died for you was to redeem you from sin. Not to just give you a free ticket to heaven. It's not like God just leaves you in your sin and you still have the same motivation. That's why it's the question. And I always wonder, even in Christian counseling, when we keep giving the same people the same word over and over again, it doesn't make any difference. you got to say, we need to quit worrying about the fruit and we need to get back to the root, right? Maybe they're not saved. They don't get it. There's no grace operating here. You're just giving them some more external rules and it's not working because there's no life. And what you're saying is foolish. What? Forgive him again? That's crazy. All my friends say that's crazy too. Yeah, but you see, if you're a believer, you understand you have been forgiven the murder of the very son of God because that's what it took to redeem you. So when you others sin against you, you go, that's nothing compared to my sin before God. Makes it easy. You see, when you remember Ephesians 4, 32, that God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteous of God in him, okay, I can now be kind, tenderhearted toward one another. Because God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven me. A new motivation. He gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Paul said to the people in Corinth, don't you know you don't belong to yourself? You're not your own. It doesn't, it's not important what you think you ought to do. What's important is what does God want for you because he owns you. We started there in Titus 1.1. Yes, you're a son of God. Yes, you're in the family of God. But you are a servant of God. You're a slave. So his, his commands are not suggestions. But if you belong to him, they're like, okay, I can trust God for that. Of course I want to be found obedient. And you plead with God, God, work those things into my life. I want to be like Jesus. I hope your prayer for our elders is not that we become more sensitive to you. We want to be sensitive to you. But we're not trying to pray and find out what your will is for this church. A lot of people say, well, I believe in democratic. Everybody has a vote. Well, God didn't get that message. So, but it's American. Well, American doesn't make it biblical. 
know, whatever form of government they have in the church, the goal, the pastors and the deacons is find out what does God want? What's his decision? Not the latest book that's been written by the megachurch pastor. What does God want for us right here in Laramie, Wyoming? Not what does the past dictate? What's our experience been? What does God want? Why? Because we're not our own. This is not our church. A lot of people say, oh, I know your church, Paul. No, no, not my church. It's the church I go. I, I, I feel, you know, a part of the body, but this is God's church. And we're responsible for the decisions that he gives us. Are we listening? Are we sensitive? And every individual is the same way. Well, I think, I prayed about it. No, 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 what does God's word say? What is his will for your life? Sometimes it takes time. People will come to me. When I was younger, I was 29 when I came here, and people would say, now, pastor, and they'd ask me a question. I'd go, my dad here? Because they were older. And I'm like, well, I felt this pressure. I, oh, I got to be the answer man. It didn't take me long to figure out because people come back and they say, hey, you told me this. And, and this didn't happen. And this happened like this. And I'm like, well, you didn't tell me the whole story. First of all, that's not fair, right? And secondly, I don't have to be the answer man. You have a relationship with God. You find that stuff out yourself. Don't blame me. Well, what, what should I be doing? Well, I'll pray for you. Here's what the Bible says. Now go figure it out. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You belong to him. He saved you on purpose. He gifted you for a purpose. And it's your opportunity as you, Romans 12, 2, are not conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of your mind to find out what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God for you. And here's the amazing, amazing, amazing news. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's not just generic. That's for you. For you. And I'm going to come back one day and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Every believer that has that hope in him, 1 John 3, purifies himself because he wants to be with Jesus. He wants to be like Jesus. He says, Jesus wants to purify himself of people for his own possession and zealous for good works. That word zealous has that idea of enthusiasm, nationalism, patriotic, but not about this life. God's given us a great country. Our leaders have turned their back on God. But our hope is, this is not our home. We're just passing through. It was said about Abraham that he looked for a better city, one with foundations that never crumble, whose builder and architect is God. And those that agree with him, they say, we're looking for a better country. An inheritance that never fades away. The conclusion, he says, Titus, pastors, these principles are non-negotiable. They're biblical, they're practical, they're evangelistic, and they all take place 
fully in the context of the local church. That's the responsibility of every church to be living out faith in the context of the local church so that we all, with our giftedness as we minister to one another, grow up to the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. That's full discipleship. Teaching them to observe all things I've commanded. If I had the opportunity, and I've had this opportunity, to lead somebody to Christ, I don't leave them out there. You know, Christy, we don't, I didn't take Christy to the hospital and we'd have a baby and then we'd go home and say, well, I hope the baby makes it now. No, we bring that baby home and we feed the baby and we clothe the baby and we clean the baby. If I get an opportunity to lead somebody to Jesus Christ, I say, well, I sure hope, find a good church. You know what I do? I say, come on, buddy, you're coming with me. I go to the best church in town. And if it wasn't, I go to a different one. You know why this is the best church in town? Because this congregation, more than ever, there's bigger churches out there, but this congregation has a personal motivation to see others come to Christ and live out that life before other people like I've never seen before. I'm not saying there's not another one. I just haven't been in one. So where am I taking? Well, you can go to someplace else, but why don't you come with me? Meet my family. I want you to grow. I want you to be surrounded, not just with me, but with other gifted people. So you can see, this isn't just my deal. This is serious believer stuff. Come with me. He said, I want you to teach these. I want you to talk about these. I want you to exhort people. What is that? That's coaching. You know, we just don't, you know, somebody gets wounded by their own sin. We don't just say, oh, well, don't go back to our church. No, no, this is, this is, we're all sinners saved by grace. We come alongside them and we give them coaching. From what? The Word of God. This is what the Bible says. Here's where you screwed up. Here's where your sin was. You didn't fall into sin. You went there on purpose. Here's the steps. Now, here's the biblical remedy. That's exhortation. That's biblical counseling. Then he says, reprove. Eh, I don't like that part. You know, I wish that the Christian life was automatic that we wouldn't have to exhort one another. We wouldn't have to approve one another. But that's what he's called us to. A lot of churches think they're above that. Oh, yeah, we don't do discipline. Yeah, we're just nice to everybody. Nice is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's just about you. You're just being nice so you don't have to love. So you love somebody, you go to them and say, Brother, is this going on? That stuff's going to kill you. It's going to wreck your family. It's going to wreck your, your, your future here on earth. You, you need to get out of this. Let me help you bear this. Let's get going. Come on. Come with me. And the Bible says then if they refuse to hear you, you go get another brother or sister, and you, you go with them. Now, this isn't just for the elders. Wouldn't it be nice? The Bible said, listen, if somebody falls in sin, tell the pastor. I don't want to know all that stuff. Eventually I will. But I hope I don't have to. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, hey, tell your brother to get back in line. He's getting out of step. He's beginning to wander aside. Tell him to get back in the ranks. That's personal. That's everybody's responsibility. And then if he won't hear you, you get another brother that says, come on, man. Come on. We want to see you get restored to fellowship. And then they won't listen to those. Then you tell the whole church. And if they won't listen to the church, then you let them be like a, a public and sinner. That means you treat them mean now? No. 
Bible says you, you treat them with love too. You just don't, they're not in your circle of fellowship. You don't say, oh, you're okay. They're not okay. What are you going to find out then? You're going to find out if they belong to Jesus or not. You put them out, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 5. Put them out of your close fellowship, and then you'll find out. If there's no discipline in their life, God doesn't, you know, bring the hammer down. If he doesn't discipline them, then they just belong to the world. Why? Because God doesn't spank other people's kids. Judgment's coming, but he doesn't bring that loving discipline in their life. But if they do, we have an example in 2 Corinthians they were faithful in 1 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians, Paul said, okay, now restore him before he's overtaken with too much grief. He's gotten his heart right. Take him back in. That's the purpose of discipline. Be nice if it's automatic, but I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters enough to go say, what are you doing? Oh, this is going to kill you. This sin is dangerous stuff. He says, you... Teach these things with all authority. Don't say, oh, now, Paul, we're living in this modern age. And, you know, the world just has a different view. The world does have a different view. It's always had a different view of Scripture and truth and what righteousness and holiness looks like. We're called to be like Jesus. Even millennials are called to be like Jesus. I saw it again last night. Oh, how can we reach millennials? I don't know what to do. Do I comb my hair different? Different mute? I don't know how to reach millennials. The gospel of Jesus Christ transcends every culture because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Get out of the style police business, get back to the gospel, and preach the gospel. Live it out. He said, this is authoritative. This isn't just for young people or old people. This is for all people. Grace discipleship is non-negotiable. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, I I pray that we would take this, this in, that we would be better equipped for our ministry, that we would pour the whole counsel of God into people so that we might see them become the planting of the Lord. Not our planting, your planting. Oaks of righteousness. And then, Lord, we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.